0: You what? This is the place to be and the time to be here, as you're getting gospel this morning. Every song was chosen specifically around the sermon this morning. Thank you, Keith, and uh, you'll see that played out I think as we go through the uh, morning. And uh, the words which were spoken at the table, prayers, just always appreciated. I always like to call your attention to that. Um, and, and help you to realize that you're hearing the message of God, not just during this time when the preacher's up front. But all throughout, our members uh, do a tremendous job of sharing the gospel. Men and women, apart from this place, uh, sharing with their neighbors and friends, I see so many of them here today, uh, you're unashamed of the gospel. Amen for that. Good, good job. Good for you. You're unashamed of the gospel, and people want to hear Something true. Something to hold on to. We need an anchor in a time of storm. It's pretty stormy the world over right now. It gets that way in our own country. And you're watching the news and you're just thinking, my, oh, my, people need something to anchor to. And you know what that is. And when you portray that in your life and you share that in your conversations, there will be people respond to it. In this great nation, full of good people, there will be people respond to it. So keep that up. You know, <clears throat> uh, in this great nation of ours, there are a lot of men and women who like to flex their muscles as well. They like to roll up their sleeves and show people what they've got. The idea behind that really is to draw attention to the strength and the beauty uh, of, the, of the body or of the arm, and uh, to draw attention to themselves. Did you know God flexes His muscles? He does. He flexed His muscle very clearly for us to see. We're going to bring that out this morning. But when you look at Isaiah chapter 52, go ahead and turn there with me. We're going to camp out in Isaiah 52 and 53 today. When you look at, for example, Isaiah 52, 10, where it says, the Lord has made bare His holy arm. That's the idea that He has rolled up His sleeve. He's made it bare so that all the nations, in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. God is going like this. I'm about to show you true power. I'm about to show you my strength in full force. Now, you might think at the first that, That's not a good thing. There were times when God exerted His power in judgment. He will do that again. We don't want to fall into the hands of the living God in judgment. But the power that He's going to point out here is really unique. He's going to do it in a way that's very, very strange. But it's very, very hopeful. Micah nails it. In chapter 7, verse 9, when he said, Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I've sinned against Him. Until He pleads my case and executes justice for me, He will bring me forth to the light. I will see His righteousness. Notice that, I will bear the indignation of the Lord until He, capital H, He, this one I'm talking about, coming, pleads justice for my case, my poor, pathetic case. What an astonishment this passage is before us today in Isaiah, beginning in verse uh, 13 of chapter 52. Uh, And uh, what a power. Quoted seven times directly in the New Testament, referenced at least 34 times in the New Testament. This text is the fourth and last of what has been called Isaiah's servant songs, where Isaiah references the servant. Now, I haven't pointed that factoid out to you through recent sermons, but it's it's a song. There are five Stanzas with three verses each, beginning in chapter 52, verse 13, and then 14 and 15. Three, and then in chapter 53, there's 12 verses, so there's your other four breaks of three verses each. It's actually written in a a poetic and and, uh, song format about the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, with perhaps greater acuity than even the gospel's presentation of his suffering. His sinless life, his grievous rejection, his groundless arrest, his illegal trials, his harsh chastening, his cruel beatings and cruel death, his royal burial and his resurrection to life are all found in our text this morning. God begins, and Craig, you can come and read this passage for us. He begins by drawing a startling image of a suffering man disfigured beyond human recognition and finishes the revelation with a depiction of this sufferer actually dividing the spoils of victory over death.
1: Okay, I'm going to begin in Isaiah 52, chapter or 52, verse 13 through uh, chapter 53, verse 12. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle my nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him for what had not been told them they will see and what they had not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a shoot out of parched ground, he had no, no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all. To fall on him he had, he was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears so he did not open his mouth by oppression and judgment he was taken away and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgressions of my people <clears throat> to whom the stroke was due <clears throat> His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. At, as he will bear the iniquities, therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Amen.
0: Be astonished. Be astonished that 750 years before Jesus Christ was born to men, that this was written in such detail. Critics say it couldn't have been about Jesus. There's too much detail, it's too alike, but it had to have been about somebody else because it's so far in the future. Other critics say, surely this must have been a forgery. It must have been written in the first century and forged as if it were an older document. Thankfully for uh, those critics uh, to answer them, we we do not need um, archaeology to testify, but When the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, there was a manuscript of Isaiah intact with this chapter in it, and those scripts were all dated back to the 7th and 8th century B.C. We have authentic documentation of God foretelling of His great power, of His flexing, His muscle for all the world to see. But be astonished at how He does it. He says kings will be astonished. They'll shut their mouths at Him. And indeed, over the years, many have beheld Him as a king. And they've looked at the nature of His kingdom worldwide and and meditated upon it and pondered it. One spoke about it. One spoke and said, Time, the great destroyer, is powerless to extinguish this sacred flame. Time can neither exhaust its strength nor put a limit to its range. This is it which strikes me most, convincingly, the divinity of Jesus Christ. Those words were spoken by Napoleon Bonaparte when he was banished to St. Helena in 1820. It's startling to moderns. Kenneth Scott LaTourette, a well-known historian, has said that as the centuries past, the evidence is accumulating that measured by his effect on history, Jesus is the most influential life ever lived on this planet. G.K. Chesterton, the English novelist and literary critic, has written, there was a man who dwelt in the East centuries ago, and now I cannot look at a sheep or a sparrow, a lily or a cornfield, a raven or a sunset, a vineyard or a mountain without thinking of him. If this be not divine, what is it? Truly, our Lord has become many things to many people. It's hard to remain neutral if you know anything of him. You either fall in love with him or you despise him. Early on, he was despised, but do you remember in last week's lesson, we talked about the nature of truth and how it comes forth in the human heart by the process of reason, by the process of Of time, men come to understand more fully about Him the need for God to do something about our sin problem, and that it would require someone outside of ourselves, all of us being sinners, to step in and intervene and take care of this problem for us, and that Jesus Christ, who claimed to be God's Son, came and suffered, all of a sudden it begins to make sense that the Lord laid on Him the sins of us all. And so it takes time for truth sometimes to permeate the heart. How many years did it take you? Between the time that you first heard the name Jesus and the time that it actually pricked your heart for the first time that He died for you, are you still waiting? Are you still not reasoning and contemplating what it is to be under condemnation for sin? Have a solution at hand and yet turn and reject Him as did many of his contemporaries, who looked upon him and said, no, this is not a king. This is not my idea of greatness. And so they put him on the cross. We too can crucify the Son of God all over again, especially we who have believed and yet turned back again away from him crucify for ourselves the Son of God all over. And so we have seen uh, the arm of the Lord being put into an astonishing presentation of Jesus Christ for us, being marred beyond recognition. I think Mel Gibson's passion, if you've seen that, was not far off at all. It was more grotesque than any of his Hollywood predecessors, and yet perhaps it still didn't fully portray what Jesus went through. Who knows? But you could not recognize that actor by the time he was put on the cross. You wouldn't have recognized who it was, and that's the idea here. He was marred beyond human recognition. Surely God would not do that to one who claimed to be his son, or would he? It was offensive. Just like some of us don't like to hear talk about death when we come to church, we would much rather talk about abundant life. We'd rather talk about the resurrection from the dead and going to heaven. And we should talk about those things. That's our goal. This is what we're living for, is to go home to be with God. This is the end. This is the aim of our faith and our religion. Yet we cannot arrive at that conclusion without first coming to grips with our sinful condition and realizing why Jesus. Why did He do what He did for us? This is uncomfortable. In fact, it's a tad bit embarrassing that you would put forth someone that you admire and love so greatly to your peers in an image of a man marred beyond recognition and bloodied, covering the recognition of his face. And yet, God went forward, though he was despised. And brought him forth in the most unlikely of times. He brought him forth, interestingly, these were in my yard. (laughs) And as I was studying, I said, outside, Matt. He brought him forth as the root of Jesse, as the stem from the root of David. Here is a poplar tree I had to cut down a couple years ago. And here is a stem or a root, a sprout of righteousness, as Jesus is described, coming forth from the Davidic line of kings that was to to always have one on the throne forever, and then God cut them off and sent them into exile. But in the same text that we're reading, God is calling for them to come back. You've seen that every week. He says, I will bring you back here, and then there will be a root, a shoot, that comes up here from underneath and grows into a great tree and produces. He'll come forth, Isaiah 53.1. He'll come forth as a tender plant out of dry ground. And Lord knows we have some dry ground around us right now, right? Last night wasn't enough again, was it? And yet in this parched, cracked ground, here's this tender plant coming forth. This is the idea. At a time of spiritual thirst, a spiritual depravity, out springs the Son of God. In the most unlikely of times and the most unlikely of way, this humble servant, think of it, he had no place to call home once he left the home. He had no place to call home. He had no formal career to advance himself by his choosing, in the sense that he did not develop his carpentry so that he might show forth all of his skills and labors to men to advance and climb up a ladder and to become someone rich or great in the community. He did not pursue that formal career. He he had no bulletproof mode of transportation as uh, the Pope, for example, today does. He walked among the people fearlessly. Now, to the Pope's credit, by the way, he hasn't been using the mobile. Jesus walked the streets, and there were times when he had to duck out of town, go into a home to avoid being executed prematurely for who he was. He had no press secretary to screen his comments, apologize for them, or to... Uh, spin them, or to say, I could have said it a little bit better. Do you see any apologies at all in the scripture coming from the mouth of the Lord, Lord God of heaven, but specifically Jesus? Never could it have been rewarded better. He had no bodyguards to protect his life. He had no, well, he did have one at one time in the garden, right? The one who stepped out and took a swing at somebody and he rebuked them to put their sword away, Peter, and healed the man's ear and went into this scenery that we're about to see but he had no bodyguards to protect his life he had no woman to define his masculinity for one to be able to say there there jesus is is like us or there jesus has a beautiful woman to kind of define how powerful or masculine he is as the kings would do he had no notoriety in his family name who knew joseph and mary He had no formal education to give credence to his statements. T.H.D., right? Phd, M.Div., Master of Divinity, nothing like this. He scored a big zero on the scale of men. He could have at least been handsome. And Isaiah said, nah, there was nothing about him that you'd be attracted to him. So that when he spoke, the words that he spoke were the only thing that you could concentrate on and let them sink down deep and let that truth begin to turn the heart and mind. He was despised and rejected by men, all right? His own didn't receive him. But the suffering which is detestable to men is that which actually establishes his credibility. Truth seekers. find in Him the ultimate display of God's wisdom and power, and certainly the flexing of the arm. To those who understand God's purpose, to those who seek enough information, to those who prayerfully pursue God, His suffering becomes not despicable, but a thing of beauty. His suffering was vicarious. That means he stood in our place. Him for us. Make that more personal. Him for me. Stood in my place. What do you mean by that? Well, this is the heart of the gospel. This is the good news, actually. This is, this is really the defining moment that Jesus took our place in judgment for our rebellion and perversion of God's will. He took our place in judgment, on death row, if you will. Every one of us is guilty of sin. Or if you are yet very young, you will become guilty of sin. You'll become aware, you'll become accountable. And you'll understand that there are things that you do that are wrong or things that you don't do that you ought to do that you'll soon come into conflict with God. God will become uncomfortable with you. There will be a confrontation. It must be this way. It must be this way. I constantly encourage people who are wrestling and struggling with the Scriptures to go ahead and wrestle and struggle with the Scriptures. I'll help you in any way I can, but this is not abnormal. For centuries, men have been reading the truth of God's will, and it brings them into conflict. This is okay, it's good, it must take place. You must go through your own suffering before you can come out with joy and glory. The justice of God demands a consequence for trespasses. Justice, as I've said over and over again, is when a crime is met with the proper punishment. the crime. When one rejects God and turns God's face away from him, as Isaiah will say in chapter 59, by his own sins, he turns God away. The consequence of that is you're turning away the one who can give you life eternally and the one who can destroy your soul and your body in hell. The consequence then of sin is death. It's death. Departure, it's absence from God eternally. There is a consequence to sin then that falls upon each one of us that brings about our death. The Hebrew letter says in chapter 2 verse 1, Every transgression and disobedience has a just reward. Every single sin ever committed by any of us has a just reward. That means a, a reward, a consequence that is meet for the rejection of God. Therefore, quote Leviticus 5.17, If a person sins and commits any of these things which are forbidden to be done by the commandments of the Lord, though he does not know it, yet he is guilty and shall bear his iniquity. Even if you don't know it, you will be considered in sin. You'll be considered guilty before God. Ignorance is not bliss then, is it? So this idea that if I go to Bible class or if I go to these extra studies, if I read my Bible on my own, it brings more confrontation. That's bad because the more I know, the more I've got to whip into shape. You better read it. You better read it close. And you better seek to please your God who loves you. And you're missing the point besides. You're missing the beauty of the relationship besides, which this truth draws you close to your creator, the creator of the universe, who loves you, made you, and wants you to come home. You're missing that point. But the idea that if I don't know things, maybe I won't be held accountable for them. You can chuck that out the door right here in Leviticus 5.17. We become guilty when we transgress God's laws, whether we know it or whether we don't. But do not despair. Even though God does not brush sin under the rug, He does not stuff it in the closet and shut the door like I cleaned the house. It has to be confronted and dealt with. There's always a consequence. Christ will bear your sin. He wants you to accept what He's about to do. Jesus, in this passage, verses 4 through 6, has borne, that is, to lift up, to carry our griefs, that is, our illnesses, our sin sickness, if you will. He has lifted up to carry our sin sickness and carried, that is, a heavy load, this heavy load that he's carrying, he's carrying it to take away our pain, our sorrows. This is the great deception, that sin is pleasurable and rewarding. The Bible says sin's pleasurable. We've all done things wrong and laughed and had a good time doing it, I suppose. Maybe I'll speak for myself on that. But maybe there's been times in your life where you, you did something, you just didn't think it was a big deal. It was just all right this time. The deception is that it's all right. It's not all right. There, there is a reward for it, but it's not a reward of, of righteousness. It's not a reward of life. So he takes away not only the guilt of our sins, but he'll carry the sorrows that come from our sinfulness, that we, that we carry about in our body, that we carry about in our minds. I talked on the telephone with someone this week, not in this congregation. I don't like to use examples from our congregation like this before you. Someone else that I know who said for 10 years he's been keeping himself, uh, keeping something a secret from his wife, and he can't bear it anymore. Well, it's pretty heavy. He'd rather come clean. This person would rather come clean. That is the heaviness. That is the weight of the sin. How many criminals have finally come forward to confess? A lot of these cold case files, which once were, have been resolved when people walk through the doors of the law enforcement agency and says, I have something to say about this. They can't contain the guilt without some form of release. And when we sin against God, we carry this weight. We might think it feels fun, it feels good. Young people in particular think, well, it sure feels good to do these things. I like some of the results I get. But if they know it's wrong, they're going to be more and more miserable until they come to that time where they say, I have to turn to the Lord. And we've had that happen amongst us too recently. And so, he lifted up this painful burden of sin. And carried it straight to the cross. And as Peter said in 1 Peter 2.24, He bore our sins in His own body on the tree. It's the greatest gift that heaven could offer. From beginning to end, the Bible is not about just being happy. It's about resolving our greatest conflict, our greatest problem. And that is that we sin and we stand condemned before God. This is what the Bible is interested in, the spirit of a man, the soul of a man. This is the greatest gift that can be offered. The wages of sin is death, Paul said in Romans 6.23, but the gift of God, the free gift of God, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He had no sins of his own, and Scripture, listen carefully, Scripture is very careful to record the sinlessness of Jesus through death. When he took our sins upon himself he did not become a sinner he became a sin bearer he carried them to the cross took the wrath of God upon himself in our place It was important that he be perfect or else he himself would be found to be a sinner in the flesh and in need of a savior Praise God For his strength, and that though he suffered being tempted, he did not fall to the devil's ploys. He wasn't suffering for his own transgressions here, but for the sins of others. There's another word used to describe the forgiveness that God affords through Christ, and it's atonement. We sang of atonement in one of the songs this morning. It means a covering over, a pacification, a pacifying. Whenever a man sins, he bears the guilt of his sins. Ezekiel will say, and we'll see in chapter 18, verse 4, the soul who sins shall die. What is this you're saying that, that the uh, children are receiving this punishment in exile because of the sins of the father? The soul who sins shall die, spiritually speaking. You worry about yourself. You worry about yourself. Don't say, well, our father sinned and got us in all this trouble. If you are righteous, God will reward you for your righteousness. If you are a sinner, God will reward you for your sinfulness. And so, this atonement means... That God is willing to cover over your sins, to forgive them, to remove them, to put them away, to remit them, and atonement means to throw a covering over. But remember this, and this is one of those things where I'd say, if you remember one thing today, remember this. Whenever you are forgiven of just one sin, somebody else has to bear it. There are no sins swept under the rug and forgotten about. Every sin is dealt with. In the Old Covenant, they were put upon an animal who, to make atonement for the people, was slaughtered by the sinner, by the offerer, was slaughtered outside the tabernacle door before the presence of the priests. And the priests would take the blood into the holy place and sprinkle it around the altar of burnt offering, and in some cases, around the altar of incense, but it would be taken into the holy place. And then, the mercy of God, the presence that sat above the mercy seat, would extend His offering of forgiveness, because the sin was displaced or transferred on to another, an animal in this case. When Jesus Christ came, He came as the Lamb. He came to take the sins of you and me and of every person that's ever lived and to allow them to be laid upon Him, to be displaced or transferred to Him and to bear the full brunt of the consequences. So when we sin today, don't just say, well, He died a long time ago and I just got to pray. I want you to think very seriously about this. The sin is confronted and dealt with before God. God wants you to come to Him confessing sin. He wants you to come to Him penitent, to turn from that sin, because His Son died to take that sin upon Himself, even to this very day and hour, and to pay that penalty for Him. So, you often have heard it said, I'm sure, that we put Him on the cross, and that in a very real sense is true. He poured Himself out unto death for us. And His own blood He offered. Now think of this with me. When Christ died and His blood was spilt, it was offered up to God on the heavenly mercy seat. And it was accepted by God through His priestly offering of Himself the perfect sacrifice so that God could forgive our sins. I was in Subway this week and uh, I met a young lady who graduated with Taylor. She knew Taylor. They had had a few conversations in school actually, but she went off to college in North New York and um, uh, she got away from her desire to pursue God. She actually quit school to come back and to quote unquote find herself, but in a good way. She knew that it wasn't good for her to be there. And she was working and we were talking. I was having a Bible study with someone, and she came over at an opportune time, and asked what we were studying. I said, Isaiah 53. I said, I was showing the connection between Isaiah 53 and Acts 8, where Philip picked this up and preached the gospel. I wrote it down for her and uh, gave it to her. I said, here's my card. If you get a chance to shoot me a text or an email and tell me what you think of it? Well, she responded within an hour. She had a break. She had her Bible in her bag. And uh, she sent me the text and said, that turned my heart. Back to the Lord, and, and the focus that I need to have on how to go forward and to move past my sinfulness right now. <laughs> it's just powerful. It's the gospel, the heart of the gospel right here in front of you. So let me finish up. I know uh, there's so much to talk about here, and we've been here for a time already. Let's mention this that it was volitional, that is, it was voluntary. Jesus went willingly. God intended this from before the foundation of the world, and He did it by allowing the hatred of men toward His Son to be carried out with cruelty toward Him. Man struck Jesus down, but Jesus allowed it. They murdered Him, and He laid His life down at the same time because He could have called 10,000 angels, right, Keith? To destroy the world and set Him free, but He didn't. It was a voluntary act of... Of love. Todd read this morning that God demonstrated His love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died, past tense, for us. Knowing that He would make that first move to solve our problems. He would have bared man's sin upon his own shoulders. God did this. Man did this. And Jesus did this. All each in his own way. And he humbled himself and went to the cross for us. So much more that could be said about each point. But finally, in chapter 53, the last three verses, it was acceptable to God. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Really? When I say something pleases me, that means I, I take some joy and I find some pleasure in it. Well, that's partly right. God was glorified in this. God found Joy in this, but because it satisfied the great sin problem of mankind. It was the one thing that God knew He must do. If He were to create us with the the volition to choose to sin, He also would provide a way of escape for us. And when His own Son came willingly to the earth, laid down His own life for us, and offered His life, His blood to God the Father, it pleased God. It satisfied God. He said, it is enough. And therefore, we see in the last verse, the resurrected Christ. He was crucified among the vile, the sinners, between two thieves who at the first reviled Him, but one turned And changed his mind. He had heard the preaching of the gospel because he said, Remember me when you come in your kingdom. How do you hear about that kingdom? You remember me. Jesus said, You'll be with me today in paradise. He was crucified among thieves, but he was buried with the rich because there were two men who kept quiet for a time among the Sanhedrin council that condemned him to death that said, I believe this is the one. I think this is him. It is Him. And they came out and received His body down from that cross in the public's eye. And one Joseph buried Him in His own hand-hewn tomb and gave Him a burial as a king would receive. All this, Isaiah said, depicts from beginning to end the humbling of the Son of God to come as a servant and the triumphant glory of victory over sin and death where He's pictured as a general... At the end of a battle, going through the spoils of war. Do you know what those spoils are? Those are your souls. Those are the souls of men. He's dividing the spoils. He's claiming those which are His. And He's exalted on high. And He's given that kingdom. And He reigns forever and ever as God's Christ. This brings about a great question. And the question is, what do you do? What do you do with your sins? There's really two answers to that. You, you pay the penalty for your sins. You, you do. You pay. Or Christ pays. Paul said in that great Roman letter, where he ties all these things together, he said, we have access By grace, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Access to peace with God, he explains. By putting our faith in Jesus Christ. In the next chapter, chapter 6, he explained that there is a unity that must take place in death. Anthony has been explaining that to us in the evenings. We join together with Christ, become Christian. We're one with Him. We put Him on The clothing, think of atonement, a covering of righteousness from Christ, to atone for our sinfulness, to be seen by God then as one forgiven. This, he said, happens when one is baptized, when one undergoes that symbolic but very, very necessary burial and union and resurrection with God. You see, the water is just tap water, but God in heaven is saying, I see that. I see what you're doing, and I hear your confession, and I will forgive you of your sins today. Won't today be your day? Let's stand and sing this song and praise our great God.
2: All that my Redeemer lives and ever prays for me, I know eternal life He gives. From sin and sorrow free. I know, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know, I know eternal life He gives. I know, I know my, my Redeemer lives. He wills that I should holy. be. In word and thought Indeed Then I His holy face may see When from this Earth lie free I know I know that My Redeemer lives I know I know eternal Life he gives I know I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that over yonder stands a place prepared for me. A home, a house not made with hands, most wonderful to see. I know, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know, I know that life he gives. I know, I know that my Redeemer lives. Please be seated. We're going to sing the first verse number 484. This is actually a request to tie in with this morning's lesson. Again, we'll sing the first verse number 484. Then after that, we'll have our announcements and closing prayer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, sacred head now wounded. With grief and shame we die.